You are listening to a teaching series from Jubilee Church entitled Exodus. The book of Exodus underlines God's desire to rescue people from their misery to a life of promise, meaning, and fulfillment. This eight-week series explores key moments within Exodus in order to more fully appreciate God's love for people. If you would like more information about Jubilee Church, please visit our website at jubileestl.org. We are... uh finishing up our series of messages on Exodus. And what I want to do today, rather than take one slice of the book of Exodus, I want to take the entire book, of which there are 40 chapters. Uh, You don't have any plans for next week, do you? 40 chapters, and I want to go from chapter 1 right straight through to chapter 40. Because I, I want you to see, there are several themes that are woven into Exodus, but I want you to see this one in particular. The Bible is full of stories of unstable, dubious characters, outcast, uh, slaves, prostitutes, thieves, greedy, narcissistic, religious, liars, selfish, murderers, whom God loved and rescued. And what's nice about that is we get in too. And that includes me. And Corinthians tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 28, that God chose what is low and despised in the world. And then it goes on, the next verse says, so that no human might boast in the presence of God. That means so that no one can say, I did these things, and that's why God loves me more than he loves you. He said, no, no, God chose the despised and, and, and the low and... And that includes all of us. I'm happy about that because I I get in on this. And the book of Exodus is no exception because it's full of sinners. It's full of people just like you and I, and some are outcasts. But they end up becoming conduits of God's grace to see the people liberated from slavery in Egypt. Sometimes when we look at the Bible, we're looking for heroes. And uh, heroes we can emulate, let's be like. David, let's be like Moses, let's be like these guys. But the fact is, is that we ought to really be looking at the activities of God, rather, a gracious God, and how he works with people like that. Because these are the people that your parents warned you about. Don't hang out with that group. Exodus is also a remarkable statement of God's grace as it relates to the disenfranchised, and in particularly women. Because women in this particular age, and also oftentimes still in the Middle East, uh, have no rights whatsoever. So a guy could say, uh, this is what I possess. I have this uh, donkey here, I have this uh, goat, and uh, this cow, and then there's her. And it was kind of all in the same category. They were like chattel, they were like property. They didn't really have any rights. But when you read the creation account, God said, let us make man, which is a generic term, in our own image. Male and female made he them. Which means, God says, females are made in my image, just and males are made in my image, or males and females. However, basically, God put it there in the same kind of category. Now, in Exodus, one of the things I love about this book is that how God honors uh, women and demonstrates uh, how uh, powerfully important that they were. When you start in Exodus 1, things look pretty nice because the people of Israel were fruitful, 
The scripture says in verse 7, they increased greatly, they multiplied, they grew, they were exceedingly strong, so that the whole land was filled with them. And th but then it says in the very next verse that a new Pharaoh came to power who didn't seem to know anything about Joseph. And he decided that the Israelites were far too many, because this little family had grown into a, a, a huge nation, far too many, and then dangerous, because if, if Egypt went to war, what would keep these people from siding with our enemies against us? And we, that would be it for us. And so he decided to enslave the Israelites. And so they treated them harshly. They made them uh, slaves. Uh, in order to subjugate them and to erase any danger Pharaoh would feel to his own kingdom. But he did, he took it a step further. Because they were so prolific and growing so fast, he commanded all the midwives that the firstborn male child was to be murdered on the spot. And he wanted to, he wanted to cut back on this, uh, this huge exponential growth. Well, the scripture says that the midwives feared God. It puts it this way, but the midwives feared God in verses 16 and 21 of, of chapter 1 of Exodus. Now, <laughs> Pharaoh said, kill them, but the midwives feared God. And one of these women that had a child, she kept him for about three months, and then it was too, becoming too impossible to hide him anymore. So... Why she would come up with this idea, I think it has to be a God thing because she put him in a basket and floated him down the Nile. Now that would seem like certain death to me. Crocodiles and all that kind of stuff. Floated him down the Nile and sent his sister to trail along, in the, along the shoreline to watch what was happening. And Moses floated into these reeds and Pharaoh's daughter had gone down to bathe and she saw this basket. She said, bring this basket. They brought the basket, and when she uncovered it, there was baby Moses. And I'm sure God made sure that he was on his best behavior. You know, you know how they are. Uh, wasn't crying. He didn't have poopy diapers. He was like smiling and eyes sparkling and the sweetest little thing you could possibly imagine. And she decided to keep him. Now, about this time... Moses' sister, Miriam, who had been watching all of this, said, hey, I got an idea. I can find one of the Hebrew women to nurse him for you. She said, would you do that? I tell you what, if you'll do that, I'll pay her wages. So Moses comes back to mama. She gets to nurse her own child, and she gets paid wages at the same time. Isn't God a good God? That's an amazing story. But... Moses grew, and he had the privilege of Pharaoh's house. And one day he went out to see how his people were doing, and he saw this Egyptian who was abusing an Israelite, and something just went off in him. And he ended up engaging this Egyptian and killing him. And he buried him in the sand. And the next day, he goes back to see his people again, and there are two Hebrews that are fussing with one another. They say, hey, boys, come on, you're, boy, you break it up. And they say, oh, yeah, you're going to kill us like you did that Egyptian? And he knew that word was out that he had murdered this Egyptian. And he runs. Runs down into a place called Midian. And while he's at Midian, he comes across a well, and he's sitting there at the well. An interesting thing about this is, is that 
shepherds come and there's not much water in places like that so it becomes a popular place well seven girls show up with their father's flock and they're going to water their flock but here's what happens the shepherds come and when they see them they chase them off and sometimes it could take a good part of the day before they finally get to water their father's flock but Moses is there at the well and he stands up for the girls and waters their flocks. And they all go home and they tell, because when they get home, their father says, how is it that you're back so early? What happened? Because usually they have to delay because of the shepherds. They told him about Moses. So, well, why didn't you invite him to dinner? And so they did. And he ends up staying. And the father ends up giving him one of his daughters, Zipporah, to marry as his wife. Well, they have a little boy named Gershom. So if you're looking for a name for a baby, Gershom is one that's not used very much. If you're looking for biblical names, Gershom. I don't know what you, you have to abbreviate that. I don't know what you call him. Grr. But uh, Zerubbabel is another name that's not used much. You could call him Little Zerub or Mephibosheth, anything like that. Uh, there are a lot of those names that are underused in the Bible, and I can help you with that if you want me to help you find a biblical name. Well, Gershom. Now, years before, Abraham had, and God had gotten together and made a covenant that all boys would be circumcised, and that was kind of like the part of the covenantal contract by which God had set apart a people for himself. But Moses didn't do it. And he kind of has lost his way. And there, it seems in the desert that God's going to destroy Moses. And Zipporah takes a knife of a flint stone. And she circumcises her little boy. Now, there's lots to that story that just don't even want to talk about that happened. But the fact is, Moses lived. Now, here's the point. When you begin to look at the book of Exodus... You see how God used midwives and female slaves and the daughter of a wicked Pharaoh and an African woman named Zipporah to serve his purpose. If it hadn't been for these ladies, Moses would have never led the people out of the bondage of Israel. God made you in his image, male and female made he you. I like that. I like that, that sense of grace and how God is demonstrating who he is in these courageous uh, women. And the other thing that's clear in the, in the book of Exodus is that God saves us, not on the basis of what we have done, but rather on the basis of who he is and what he has done. Now, these Israelite slaves, they get freed, but... They aren't freed because they're righteous. The fact is they have adopted the culture of Egypt and they worship idols. They're not exactly innocent people. But God rescued them. Why does he do it? Because of his grace and mercy. Now several verses, let me just take an excerpt, would demonstrate that. God says, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and I have heard their cry. Then he said, I know their sufferings. So he hears... And he knows. The cry of the people has come up before me. Also, I have seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppress them. 
He sees. Do you get it? He sees what's happening in your life. He hears. Help me. <laughs> he hears. <laughs> and he knows. That's the kind of God that we see in the book of Exodus. God delivers them because of his compassion, not Israel's righteousness. Are you starting to connect it to why you're saved? Yeah. Why you did it? Yeah. God doesn't help us because we pulled ourselves together. Now just hold on and I'll go out and I'll clean up my act and I'll stop doing all these things and then, I, and then maybe I'll come and be a part of church. No, 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 no. God doesn't save us because we pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps, you know, or that philosophy, which is not a biblical verse, by the way. It's not in the Bible. God helps them that helps themselves. It's not there. He, he doesn't help us and save us because we deserve it. He rescues sinners like me, those who can't help themselves. And Israel, what were they? They were idol worshipers. They are unlovable except to God. God loves them. Now, that's grace. And you see that woven throughout the book. Grace is what moves God to use a bunch of women to raise up a redeemer to set his people free. Grace is what compels God to rescue these people from their oppression and from their slavery. But also, grace is what kindles God's passion to drum up a plan for Israel to build a tent. Now, I used to camp a lot when we were, had little kids. It was, it was the only vacation we could afford was camping. We had a canvas tent. That shows you how long ago I go back. Canvas. And uh, the last camping trip we made with our family was in Oklahoma, where it was like, stays about 200 degrees in the summertime. And it's twice that hot inside the canvas tent. And... Uh, that was our last camping trip. Uh, the reason it was our last is because my wife announced it. <laughs> said, we're done with camping. I'll camp at the Hilton from now on. Thank you. So we got rid of the tent. I held on to it for a while. Who knew she may change her mind, but she didn't. Uh, but these latter chapters of Exodus, chapters, a, a good part of Exodus, chapter 25 through 31, and chapters 35 through the end of the book, chapter 40, are seldom read and basically seldom preached on. They're not as thrilling as the Red Sea. That's an amazing thing. Well, I'd love to see that. Not as thrilling as a mountaintop on fire. And so those are the kind of things that draw attention. But those latter chapters, all those chapters, they're about a tent. And God uses seven chapters to explain how he wants it built. Then it must be important. There's all kinds of things that he's wanting to show us. And it's about a desire that God has to dwell with us. And it should really encourage us. So the instruction shows us that God has a desire to have a relationship with us and to be close to us, not far away, but close to us. But why did he have him build a tent that he would be in this tent? Well, this tent had several little rooms and the inner room where the Holy of Holies was, where the manifest presence of God was, was like people were walled off from that. There's a reason. Because God is holy, and guess what? We ourselves are not. And I can't, 
think of an adequate illustration, I probably will after I'm done, to describe what that's like. If God is a bonfire, we are a container of gasoline. God is holy, we're not. Put the gasoline by the bonfire and it's annihilated. And that's the degree of God's holiness. And he's come up with a way that he could dwell with us and not annihilate us. Now that's interesting. God is pure, he is holy. For people who are unholy to be near a holy God is to be annihilated. Exodus 19.21, the people said, don't let God speak to us lest we die. Now, that's how it was. If, if God even talks to us, we hear him speak to us. He's so pure, he's so holy, he's so powerful. We'll just die. We'll be annihilated. Isaiah had an experience that scared him as well. He went to the temple and, and he saw the Lord in the temple. And he didn't say, oh, hey, great to see you, Lord. He said, woe is me. I'm undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King of Kings, the Lord of, of Lords. The, God says in Exodus 33, 20, he said, man shall not see me and live. Well, then how can God be with us? Well, here's where the tent comes in. God's desire to dwell with us. He plans and gives a blueprint to build a tent called the tabernacle, whom he can dwell with in his people and his holiness not annihilate them. There are walls, there are rooms, there are very thick curtains that separate the inner room of God's manifest presence. All those rooms are degrees of celebration. And that's what Exodus 25 through 31 is about. God desires a relationship with us even if it means he dwells in a tent. He came to us. We didn't go to him. He came to us. So then you move through these chapters to Exodus 35 to 31, seven chapters, blueprint of the tabernacle. And then Moses suddenly stops talking about this because something took place. He was up in the mountain with God, and the people down below got tired of waiting for him to come back. And so the rumor mill started. Moses got too close to the fire. He saw God. He died. He might have fallen off a cliff. He might have been eaten by something, but he's not coming back. They got tired of waiting because there was a delay, and so they devised their own plan. They came to Aaron, Moses' brother, and said, because they're basically idol worshipers, make us an idol, and we can follow him. And, and Aaron said, bring all your jewelry, all your gold bracelets, rings, stuff. And he melted them down, and he fashioned this golden calf, and they had a big hoopla. They had a big party. And they're feasting, and they're dancing, and they do despicable things with each other. Now, God says to Moses, get down to the camp. My people have corrupted themselves. Now this, what's going to happen? All these other chapters, God is preparing a tabernacle that he can live among his people, and they do this. And, and 
Moses is talking to God and interceding for the people. And God says, all right, Moses, all right. I'll get you to the promised land. I'm going to send an angel to lead you, but I'm not going to go there. And Moses said, oh, God, if your presence does not go with us, we don't want to go. Now, I would that every church in the world would have that in their hearts. If God's not with us, we're not doing this anymore. God, we love your presence. We crave your presence. Without you, we can't do anything. I just would, because sometimes you can design things in such a way that they run and perpetuate themselves over and over again, but it's a cul-de-sac. Where is the church where God's presence is there? And lives are transformed and changed. And so he pleads the cause. He pleads his case before God, and he says this to God. He says, God, is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, and every other over from every other people on the face of the earth? And what is it that makes us distinct? It's God's presence. He says, otherwise, we're not any different than any other person on the earth. Now, what would God do? Here's the thing about God. He is stubbornly unconditional in his love for us. You know what? I've said this before to myself, mainly. I said, God, if I were you, I would have offed me a long time ago. I've, I've said that more than once. You know what I'm talking about. We know the corruption how easily we can get dissuaded or discouraged or angry or whatever. But what would God do? Moses pleads the case. If your presence is not with us, we're not moving. I don't want to go. And that's how I feel about the church. That's why we pray. We come together on Wednesday mornings and we pray. We come together periodically throughout the year and we have an entire week of prayer. We pray in our community groups because we want to know where God's leading us and what he wants to say to us and we're expressing our dependence upon him, we must have his presence. We must be a people of his presence. And this city must have a church where there are people of his presence that love him and therefore can love others unconditionally. And this is what God said to Moses' case. He said, this I will do. I'll go with you. You have found favor or grace in my sight. I know you, your name. He says, I will be gracious to whom I'll be gracious, and I'll show mercy on those whose I will show mercy. See, the guiding principle in Moses' life was God's presence. That ought to be the guiding principle in your life, too. Are you close to God? Are you walking far off from God? Do you desire his presence in your life? That's the guiding principle for Moses. It must be for any church that is a church, a real church. Is what makes us distinct is the presence of God. If God's not here, if he's not among us, well, let's not play the game. We must have his presence. Now, God says, okay, let's do it. I'm going to go with you. Because God's desire is to be with us, to have a relationship. And that goes against everything that we can think naturally because we're used to earning our way. It's not about merit. It's not about earning your way. It undercuts our sense of justice and fairness. But he does. He loves us unconditionally. Now that doesn't mean that if you sin there aren't any consequences. You all have sinned enough to know there are consequences to your sin. 
And so I'm emphasizing one side of the case because I think you're well acquainted with the other one. That there are consequences to sin. But God's love is unconditional. Romans 5.8 puts it this way. But God demonstrates his own love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He created us to have a relationship. God's love is a reciprocal act. He loves us. We love him. We live our life loving God. And doing that, that kind of love is called worship. Worship is just not what you do on Sunday morning. It's not when you plug a Christian CD in. Worship is your life. You love God. Your whole life becomes an act of worship. In order to be loved, love has to have a recipient. And say, God created you to be the recipient of his love. And that that we might pour our love back to him. And his love for us is unconditional. I have to tell you, this blows my mind. When I think about a holy God loving me unconditionally. Let me read you a couple of scriptures. Just let it sink into your heart. Isaiah put it this way. God says, you were precious in my sight and I have loved you. Now think, listen, God says that to each person in this room. You are precious in my sight and I love I don't get it. I don't feel precious because as you are precious in my sight. John says, 1 John 4, 19 says that we love him because he loved us first. I could have never loved him if he had not loved me first. We, we are all like these Israelite slaves, lost, dead, in bondage, cannot free ourselves, are far from God, strangers to God, even we could say enemies to God. And then, let me add some more to this. A prophet named Hosea married a woman who became quite unfaithful and was a prostitute and was sold repeatedly. God came to Hosea and says, go buy your wife back. She's being auctioned off. Go get her. Bring her back. Because she said, this is a statement of how I am with my own people. They've been unfaithful to me. They prostitute themselves with things in this world. But I love them. Go, I'm going to buy you back, just like Hosea did. And this is what he says in Hosea 14.4. He says, I will heal their backsliding. I will love them freely. Now, to backslide is to kind of pull away from God. It's to substitute God for other things. could be a relationship. You get tangled up in a relationship. God becomes less to you. That relationship becomes more could be hobbies, could be work, could be trying to make it. It could be any number of things to become a golden calf for you, an idol by which you substitute God and, and, as your first love. And, th- and these other things become your first love. We, uh, like Israel, have been unfaithful to God. And so whenever you do that, you backslide. You, you kind of have pulled away and you're following from afar off. But here's what God says to you and me, all of us backsliders here today. He says, I will heal you. Today can be the day when you are healed from your backsliding. And he says, I will love them freely. That's an amazing statement. His unconditional eternal love for you, even when we are unfaithful to him. 
He's still faithful to us. Jeremiah puts it this way. He says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness, I've drawn you. These are Old Testament scriptures. You thought you'd only find this kind of stuff in the New Testament? Are you kidding me? God's the same God. Here in the New Testament, it's grace. I've loved you with an everlasting love. Everlasting means it never stops. With loving kindness, I've drawn you. He didn't beat us. With loving kindness, he drew us to himself. And so God says, build me a tent. Seven chapters, building a tent. Every detail important. God desires to dwell in a tent among the people. He could have maybe forgiven from a distance, but he desires to be with us. And his grace and unconditional love is absolutely tenacious. He furiously pursues us. I love that about God. His grace moves him to descend into a tent in order to have a relationship with us. Now, when we think of having a relationship with God or our spirituality, we think about what we've done mostly, that we've pursued God. So if I were to say, hey, how are you doing with God? How are you doing spiritually? Most of us would say, well, I've done better, which simply means you're not reading the Bible or praying as much or you've given in to a besetting sin. I mean, it's been better. How are you doing spiritually? Oh, you know. How are you doing spiritually? Great. You know, it's been, it's been an entire week now, and I've got up and prayed and read the Bible, read a chapter a day to keep the devil away. I've done that. And uh, I haven't done that besetting sin all week, so it's like, you know, I'm doing good. And that's how we think. But, but the scripture's focus is on God's pursuit of you. Exodus about God's, is a book about God's relentless pursuit for his people, his family, his grace, his unconditional love. He pursues these people. And they're not very nice. Grace means that God is pursuing you, that God forgives you, that God sanctifies you, that is, he sets you apart, he absolves your sins. That's what it means. So when you forget to read the Bible or you forget to pray and you don't listen to God, let me just say, he's faithful. He's still listening to you. The scripture says he inclines his ear to us. He's, he's wanting to, he hears, he sees, he knows. And when you are apathetic toward God, he is not apathetic toward you. I mean, his love is amazing. Grace simply means God pursues us. The psalmist put it this way, surely goodness and mercy shall pursue me all the days of my life. I belong to him. No matter where I run, goodness and mercy are chasing me down. That's how the psalmist puts it. I love that about him. And so we, when we talk about our spirituality, we should speak of not of someone who's done well or poorly, not as someone who primarily acts, but primarily as someone who's been acted upon by God himself. So if I've not been a good boy this week, and you ask me, how are you doing spiritually? I would simply say, God justifies the ungodly. Yeah, I know. He, 
And that's really what compels me to want to obey him. Grace is what compels God to find stubborn delight in dwelling with calf-worshipping sinners like me. Grace moves him to descend into a tent just to be, have a relationship with us. And he did it ultimately. This tabernacle, this tent, is really a type of something that transpired when we get over the New Testament when God himself came in the form of a baby. His name was Jesus. God incarnate in human flesh that he might move into our world to be with us. I said, well, we're it. Yeah, to where he is now. You who believe in him, he's in your heart. You can't get any closer than that. And he's made us, this church right here, a temple of his spirit, the body of Christ here on earth. And so that which was a type or a symbol, it actually happened, that tent is transpired now. You are that tent. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. He wants to be with you so much, he moved right inside of you. That's an amazing thing. He would, he would do that. And, and the day Jesus was crucified, that's the day he, he picked up the tab on all your sins. Every sin you ever did, past, present, and future sin. He paid the bill and sacrificed himself for you. In the day that he was crucified on the cross for your sins, the scripture says that that veil, that heavy curtain that separated the people from the holy presence of God was ripped in two. Demonstrating that we can, without fear, have free access to God in Christ Jesus. <laughs> now, let me tell you where you're at. There is now, therefore, no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Now we can stand before a holy God wearing Jesus' own robe of righteousness. When God sees us, he sees the righteousness of Jesus. Is that not an amazing thing? Yes. You know, really... Inside, I know you're enthused, but that's something to be so excited about. Father God looks upon us, and he sees Jesus' righteousness. You are hidden in Jesus if you love him and follow him. We, the church, have become the temple of God. His Holy Spirit in us, upon us, acting through us. His presence in the midst of us. Can't get any closer than that. His family, the church, the community of his presence, that's what he's done. The tent stated his divine purpose from the very beginning. God wants to be with his people. And it always amazes me that God wants to be with me. And if you were to say to me, hey, can we spend some time together? I just want to be with you. That's an honor, isn't it? Someone really wants to be with you. We're talking about God himself wants to be with you, have a relationship with you. So, the last chapter of Exodus, this tent or tabernacle gets finished. We started in chapter 1, now we're in chapter 40. We went through the whole book. But I wanted you to see this theme that's woven through the entire book. And it's finished. And this is what it says in verse 33. So Moses finished the work. And then the next verse. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. 
I'm, I'm a temple of his spirit, so are you. We together corporately. That the glory of the Lord fills us and our lives. Now, let me just say three ways you can respond to this. First, I want to speak to you if you know that you've done just what Israel did. God's disappointed you or there's been delay or things had not worked out in your life and you build a calf. That is, you've got to substitute God. You've backslidden. You're not, you, you're not following God closely now. Been disappointed in God's delay, just as Israel was. And you find a substitute to try to fill the void in your life and they'll never, never fill it. Never. Relationship won't do it. God has a word for you today. He heals the backslider and loves you freely. If you just say, yes, Lord, that's me. That's me. He heals and loves you freely. And then, what about you? You've been a recipient of his grace and mercy. You've been a recipient of his unconditional love. But someone has treated you unjustly or someone has offended and hurt you. And you're struggling with forgiveness. Listen, I know what I'm talking about. I've had to walk this road lots of times. Instantly forgive and release that no root of bitterness grow in my heart. And if I don't forgive people who've been unjust to me, then I hold them in bondage and incarcerate myself. But when I become a conduit of grace and I forgive them, without condition, then something is released of God's almighty power to actually even change their heart. You've been a recipient of grace and mercy. Don't be so critical. Release people. Forgive them. And then there's probably people here that you retreat from God because you know you're not doing right. And somehow you have a standard that your relationship is based upon that. How well you've done or not done. I just have good news for you today. You can walk out of this room a different person. Receive his grace. (laughs) I just receive your grace. I just receive your unconditional love. I don't deserve it. We all know that you know it and I know it. But I just receive what you want to give me today. 